Good morning and happy Mother's Day, Aletheia Church. Uh, I am sure that this particular Mother's Day uh, was not what many of you were expecting, at least when 2020 started. Um, but know for the moms out there, we love uh, you. We appreciate you. We are praying for you as leaders. Uh, I know that this day uh, is a day of celebration for many, thankful for uh, the moms in your life or thankful for the opportunity to be a mom. Uh, but I also just want to say that I know this day is difficult for many as well. Uh, for those of you that have lost mothers or for those of you that long to be mothers uh, but struggle with infertility, know that we are here for you, that we are praying for you. Uh, and that we love you, but most importantly, God loves you, He hears you, and He cares for you. So happy Mother's Day, and I hope that you can find some joy and celebrate together today uh, with the moms in your life. Uh, if you have a Bible uh, or your scripture journal, you can go ahead and turn over to Acts 15. That is where we are going to be this morning. And I want to give a quick recap on just what we've seen throughout the book of Acts so far. Uh, we've been studying this book since August, and the book of Acts, uh, it really gives us uh, uh, this great picture of the beauty of what God has done uh, through the early church. Uh, we said that all the way back in Acts 1-8, let me read that to you. Uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We, we've said from the beginning that that verse is uh, the power source or the, the key verse for the entire book of Acts that God declared both what the church was supposed to be doing, but also what it would do, that it was a promise that God would be faithful to see these things happen. And as we studied this book together, we've seen that God has been faithful to that promise, and it's been amazing. Uh, we've seen the gospel explode in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and now as we continue to study, we see that it is expanding into the rest of the Roman world. And as the church has expanded, it has also uh, started to face uh, certain issues and problems. And they're trying to work through these issues and problems together. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. You, you have this new uh, body of believers uh, trying to figure life out together. You have uh, different traditions within the Jewish faith uh, trying to figure out what it now means to follow Jesus as Messiah and King. Uh, you have a lack of centralized leadership in the church, but also the leaders that are around trying to lead these new churches in the face of persecution. You also have uh, non-Jewish uh, Gentiles coming into the family of God, uh, also struggling to figure out what it means to follow Jesus as new believers and new converts uh, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're all asking this question, what do I need to do to be faithful uh, and honor God in my life? And this was the big issue that we saw last week that Pastor Theo uh unveiled for us, circumcision. Should Gentile men have to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus? Let me just say this. As a man, that is a big ask. That is a big ask right on the front end here. Uh, 
especially for men who are looking to convert. And let me just say, if that was going to end up being a non-negotiable item for the early church, I'm going to imagine that the majority of early converts would have been men and children. That the men would have been, ah, I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know if that's a step I'm willing to take in the midst of this. And so the early church in Jerusalem is trying to figure out how they're going to answer this question. What is the role of circumcision in following Jesus? And what I, what I think Theo did a great job of last week when we looked at this is how the church leadership came together and worked through this issue and that they were uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit to reconcile with one another, to not agree on everything, but figure out a way to move forward and reconcile. This week, I want us to look at the issue at hand because it's the same issue that Theo revealed to us last week. Uh, But I want us to look at how traditions and preferences of the early church had to be addressed in order for the church to continue on mission. Think about it in this perspective. In 2020, uh, the church is not that different from the church some 2,000 years ago. We are filled with problems and questions and preferences and traditions, and we have to address those traditions and address those preferences in ways that will not inhibit the mission of God from going forward. We have to answer questions like, what role will politics play in the church and what role will we allow them to play? We have to answer questions like, is there a right style of worship and music for our Sunday morning gathering? Is there a right code of dress? Is there certain music that's acceptable or unacceptable to the Lord? Are there certain things that we should hold people accountable to? For example, is it okay to drink alcohol? Should we ever curse? Uh, There are a number of questions that the church has been seeking to answer in this realm. And so let's look at the text and look at how the early church in Jerusalem answered these issues. And let's start by reviewing what Theo showed us in verses 4 through 11 last week in Acts chapter 15. It says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by mouth mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So as a quick just recap of what we, we see going on in these verses, right? Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, which is a long journey from Antioch. So they, they've traveled some distance to head to Jerusalem and they get to Jerusalem and they are immediately faced with drama, according to Luke. 
Uh, so they, they get there and they share with the elders and the leaders of this church in Jerusalem all that God has been doing in their missionary journey, the, the one that they just got back from. And immediately it says this, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So Paul and Barnabas have just got done saying, hey, we planted all these churches. Look at all these cool things that God was doing. The Holy Spirit has been faithful to the mission that Jesus promised that it would be faithful to as we've been heading into these new cities and places all over the Roman world. And the moment they get finished sharing this good news and this testimony of what God has done, some uh, grouches in the back stand up and say, yeah, those guys need to be circumcised or everything you did is for uh, no gain or no profit. So, so, so you look at that and you're like, all right, here we go. <laughs> oh, everything I just did in regards to advancing the gospel has been nulled and void according to these men. Now, now remember, the Holy Spirit is already at work here. But here we have an example of men trying to step in and place qualifiers on what God is doing. And this becomes the danger that we're going to see with Uh, thinking through our traditions and our preferences and comparing that to the mission of God. That whenever we try to add something to the work of what Jesus Christ has already done, we are going to find ourselves in big trouble. Now, think about this from this perspective. If you were a Jewish believer, which the men in this room would have been for the most part, there are roughly 600 and some odd Old Testament laws and customs. But notice, what is the one that the Pharisees mention here? Circumcision, right? I want you to see that even though there were a ton of rules and customs in God's word that they could have cared about, that they could have pushed on people, they pick and choose which ones they care about the most. And before we run off and say, yeah, the Pharisees, they were trouble when Jesus was around. And even the the Pharisaical tradition inside of the church is trouble. We do this as well. That we are quick to do this as Christians. We all have rules, preferences that we often begin to elevate over what God says to be true. Some of them are big And some of them are really small and insignificant. Let me give you an example. Um, I grew up in a Methodist church outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia. And my grandfather is not what I would have uh, labeled as a a devout uh, follower of Jesus. I believe that he he knew the Lord, but I would not have called him a a devout, on-fire disciple and follower of Jesus. And yet... My grandfather would curse like a sailor and had so many different things that he would kind of do in his life that maybe even didn't necessarily uh, display fruit and bearing with repentance that uh, Jesus would say we should see in our lives. But let me tell you something my grandfather did care about. If you ever walked into a church, you better take a ball cap off. My grandfather cared deeply about that, and he would argue to the death about how sacrilegious and evil it was towards the Lord to have a hat on in in God's house. And I want want you to see Peter's response to what the, the, the Pharisees bring up here by saying that these Gentile converts needed to be circumcised. 
Peter steps up and he says, look, you guys have heard my testimony. God has saved them, the Gentiles. So why then are you placing tests on them that we as Jewish men don't have to pass? Gentlemen, I could not keep the law of God. Why would we demand that they do so as well? Right? Peter has this beautiful moment of clarity and being able to sift through what the gospel declares is true and necessary in order to witness to the glory of God and being able to also sort through the traditions of man and even the law of God at times that we are not bound to any longer. Right? Peter declares in this moment to the, the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, I am for the mission and the advancement of the gospel over the traditions of our fathers. He doesn't say that those traditions are unimportant. He doesn't bang on them for having these traditions or these preferences even. But he says they should never be elevated to a position of being more important than leading other people into a relationship with the God and creator of the universe. And so then James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, stands up to speak. And here's what he says in verses 12 through 20. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God had first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here's what we see. God has saved these Gentiles. Peter testifies to this. And then James steps up and says, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Here's what I think we need to see when we're processing and thinking through uh, things we care about, traditions or, or rules that we've put in place in following God. In order to witness properly to those around us, especially those who do not know the Lord. We should be in the business of trying to eliminate obstacles, not add obstacles. James is saying we should try to help the Gentiles discover the love of God, not make it more difficult for them. And here's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Are we really that different from what the church was wrestling with here in Jerusalem? Are we working to do this? Are we working to eliminate cliques? One of the things that I think I, I hear frequently about many, many churches, including our own, 
that new people sometimes really find it hard to connect and feel loved at a church because there are so many cliques and social groups that are formed inside of churches. What are we doing as believers to make sure that new people know that God loves them and that because God loves them, we do as well? Are we willing to lay down our preferences of always talking to the same people or always hanging out in the same circle of friends once a service ends in order to welcome and love on a new person? Are we removing barriers that are unnecessary, like forcing certain styles of worship or forcing people to dress a certain way when they come to church? Maybe even for me as a leader, am I making sure that my preaching style is clear and that the gospel is at the center of every message? Or am I declaring rules that need to be followed that have no weight or of importance as far as salvation and justification go? We should be helping our unbelieving neighbors and friends by removing barriers and obstacles, not making it more difficult. And James lists here just three things that he thinks the Gentiles should avoid. And I want to share those really quick with you because as we're working through this, if I said earlier that there were 600 and some odd rules and customs that the Jews could have picked up that they should, could have tried to force on these new Gentile converts, James just picks out three. He says that they should not uh, eat food sacrificed to idols, that they should avoid sexual immorality, and that they should avoid uh, ant meat that was strangled or that had blood in it. And here's why I think James would bring this out. He tells them to flee sexual immorality because the reality is morally God demands of his people to live a certain way and that there were going to be many, many moral codes that Gentiles would already follow that fell in line with the moral law of God. But sexual immorality in particular inside of Gentile contexts often was a particular sin that was celebrated and encouraged. And so in this particular instance, James is saying, hey, we think that you guys, it will go well with you if you begin to put that sin to death and live differently than those around you. Now, as far as the food, the food issue goes, the dietary restrictions in and of themselves were not things that these Gentile converts would need to follow in order to be invited into the family of God. But James and the rest of the believing Jews there knew this. Jews detested anything associated with these various dietary restrictions. And so to create unity and love between both the Gentile church and the Jewish church, it would go well with them if they would agree to submit and not do these things for the sake of their Jewish brothers and sisters. The same way that the Jewish brothers and sisters in these churches were going to have to lay down some of their preferences, their traditions, in order to love their Gentile brothers and sisters well. So here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Why then? Why, when we know our mission, which is to witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, do we still see churches struggling with this same issue of tradition and preference like the church in Jerusalem? I once heard Andy Stanley teach on uh, what he called mission drift and ways he saw the early church drifting from the mission. And he pulled out three uh, 
uh, separate uh, and key things for us to look at and see that the early church struggled with and that the church today can still struggle with. And I want to share those three uh, key uh, drift uh, points with you. The first one is this, that the early church struggled here and drifted from a passion to witness to instead pacifying or appeasing their local internal membership. I've said multiple times already this morning that we all have preferences. But here's the question. Do those preferences dictate ministry rules? Are they non-negotiable rules that everyone must follow? For us here at Aletheia Church here in Gainesville, we are located in the South and we are also a Southern Baptist church by denomination. And there are a number of Southern Baptist churches that I have come in contact with since I have moved to Florida. And most of those churches are sadly either in decline or what I would consider to be on life support. The number of those churches that are struggling is astounding to me and it's heartbreaking. Most of the time though, the reason those churches are stuck uh, and in decline is not because of a lack of power in the gospel. It's not because those people don't even genuinely love God. No, most of the time what I see in those churches is that the reason they struggle to reach the next generation and they struggle to reach people in their city and in their context is because they are stuck in their traditions and ways of doing things and have chosen tradition and preference and a way of doing church over reaching their neighbors and those around them. I'm very, very fortunate that where when I came to faith, my pastor was an older gentleman that understood what was going on here in Acts chapter 15. His name was Pastor Dave Prophet. And by the time that I came to know the Lord, he was almost 60. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, he was in his early 60s. And there was some, some really, really um, cool things about having a man that, that was in his 60s that had had a lot of experience of walking with the Lord and yet hung out with a bunch of people in their early 20s and 30s. And I'll never forget one particular time he had given me the opportunity to preach on a Wednesday night. And my family drove down from my hometown to witness uh, me preaching. And after the service, I went up to go talk to my grandfather and I overheard a conversation between my grandfather and my pastor. And I remember my pastor looking at my grandfather and saying, hey, you know, uh, how did you feel about the service tonight? How did you feel about how your, your grandson did? I bet you're super proud. And my grandfather was, and he spoke very, very highly of me and was very, very kind about my terrible sermon <laughs> that evening. Uh, but then my grandfather said this, I don't particularly care for the music here. It's too loud and I don't like it. My grandfather was a man who liked hymns and he liked the piano and he, he would have enjoyed those types of things. And the music at, at our church uh, had a very punk rock and Southern California feel to it. And so it would not have been up his alley. And I'll never forget what my pastor said as he looked at my grandfather. He said, you know, I don't prefer the music very much here either. And I'm the pastor. But every morning I wake up and I pray to God will you give me the strength to surrender my preferences so that my grandchildren and their children might know Jesus? See, the church in Jerusalem was at a crucial decision point. Will they continue to fulfill and pursue their God-given mission or will they drift and surrender to the traditions of their fathers and their old way of doing things? Will they appease the pharisaical Christians that were inside this congregation, or will they force 
everyone inside the church, the total body of Christ, to constantly examine and re-examine their methods of ministry, being willing to adjust so that they can stay on mission and reach others and declare the glory of what God has done in the gospel. We must consistently re-examine and make sure that we as a church, and the church is the collection of God's people, those who have believed and considered themselves to be disciples of Jesus, we must consistently re-examine whether our passion is for witness and seeing people come to know the Lord and being made disciples or if we are interested simply in our own traditions and pacifying the, the traditions and preferences of others. The second thing that Andy Stanley shared was this, that the early church had drifted from a grace-based view of ministry to a law-based view of ministry. He says that they started with a robust view of salvation, and as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, the early church clearly had that. Peter preaches one of the most amazing sermons you'll ever see very, very early on in the book of Acts. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, they've moved to rule keeping and the law. And this can be the same thing that we see creep into our churches, right? A church is planted with a a view of reaching a particular neighborhood or a, a particular city or a particular people group. But as the church grows and as people come to know the Lord and as we begin to disciple people, we forget that it was grace that drew those people to God, not the law. And so we begin to teach people, you must have a quiet time or you must serve in these ministries or you need to do these things in order to be a part of our church. Let me just share some good news this morning, church. We cannot add to the work of Jesus. There is nothing that you or I could do that would add to the finished work of Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. There's a reason why as Jesus hung from the cross, his last words were, it is finished. He wasn't talking about his life. He was talking about the wrath of God for sin being satisfied once and for all. And so we need to consistently check ourselves and the ministries that we're involved with to make sure that we are participating and leading people in grace-based ministry, not law-based rule-keeping. The third drift that we see happening inside the early church is a drift from focus on internal transformation of the heart to external conformity to rules and appearance. Let me read to you what David says in Psalm 51, verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David, a man who's called a man after God's own heart, knew God needed to be at work in his own life and that a true and sincere love of God would lead to transformation of his heart to follow God's ways, not his own. We have to do the hard work of seeking to avoid external appearance tests that churches often place on us and ministries often create. 
if we create a list of rules and external appearances that people need to follow, we create a group of people that follow a bunch of rules but don't necessarily ever even know God. If we force people to submit to our political views, if we force people to submit to our views on alcohol or how to study the Bible or what music they need to like or accepting even nuanced theological viewpoints, if we force them into those things and then say that they are okay, we are giving them a false picture of what it means to be in Christ. We need to teach and allow God to do the hard work of transforming and redeeming hearts and souls for his glory. As the church, we are the men and women of God, and we must avoid mission drift. We must avoid the type of drift that was even beginning to find its way into the early church here in Jerusalem. We must consistently re-examine our motives, consistently re-examine our ministry practices and ask ourselves collectively, is this something that is tied to the gospel of Jesus Christ or is it simply a preference or a rule that may even be a good thing, but is not necessarily something we must attach some, someone to? One of my favorite ways to look at this is we can call these issues open-handed and closed-handed issues. Closed-handed issues are issues that we would approach and say, someone must believe and hold to these things to be a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. Open-handed issues are things that we can even deeply care about, but they are not salvific in nature. They carry no weight on whether someone is really saved and in Christ. And church, I would submit to you as someone who deeply cares about theology and has many, many opinions and preferences that there are very, very few things that fall into the closed-handed category, but there are many, many things that fall into the open-handed category. And we must do the hard work of figuring out what those things are and seeking to be patient, seeking to be gracious, seeking to be loving so that we might witness to the glory of Christ to those who do not know him already and invite them to know and love Jesus because the barrier and the bar is Jesus's life in our place. And so what will we choose? Church, we are faced with a question this morning. What will we choose? Will we fight for the mission and the glory of God or will we allow ourselves to get bogged down and drift into preference and tradition? The great thing about what we see here in Acts chapter 15 is they choose mission. They choose the glory of God over their own preference and theology. And look at the beauty of what God does as they choose that, right? In verses 22 through 29, we see that they choose to preach a grace-driven gospel. It says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. With the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria on Cilicia greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds 
although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. I love what they say, that we sought to put no greater burdens but these requirements and that those requirements were for the sake of unity inside the church, but not even salvific in nature. And you see the response as you move further down into Acts 15, that the brothers and Gentiles in Antioch rejoice that their salvation is being declared complete by their brothers because of what Jesus has done, not by their own performance. They are encouraged. And church, let me just say this. The goal of what we're supposed to be doing is encouraging one another to love God more deeply and follow him more closely. And that is exactly what they do here by preaching a grace-driven gospel. Now, the second thing they do is they seek to equip and encourage the church as they go out and preach this grace-driven gospel. Starting in verse 30, he says, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And so we see there, right, this focus on the word of God and what he has done for us in Christ. Church, if we are more interested in building up people to love God and serve him, we will not get bogged down in our preferences and traditions. If we use God's word to encourage them and to remind people that they are adopted and that they are beloved in Christ, we will not get bogged down by tradition and preference. That if we stay focused on our mission, we don't have time to get bogged down by our own selfish desires and preferences. And so as we can follow the example of the church of Jerusalem, we can preach a grace-driven gospel. We can seek to equip and encourage our brothers and sisters around us. And the last thing we can do is we can follow the example of Paul and Barnabas and continue to witness, encourage, equip, and plant new churches. Look at what they do. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." Paul and Barnabas, even in the midst of a sharp disagreement on ministry practices, continue to 
go forward and continue to take the gospel to cities so that they might strengthen churches they've already planted and plant new churches. They continue to witness and share the grace of what Jesus Christ had done. And so church, will we take charge and ownership in our own lives? Guys, the church is not a building. We we know that now more than ever. (laughs) As we gather in this season digitally, and as restrictions become lax, we may, may gather in groups of 10 or so to worship on Sunday mornings. But the building that we have gathered in for years here in Gainesville, we cannot gather in right now. Yet the mission of the gospel goes forward. Will we take charge and ownership in our own lives and lay down our preferences and traditions for the sake of the gospel? We are in 2020. We are in a campaign and presidential campaign year. Will we lay down our political preferences and idols for the sake of witnessing to others? Will we not allow ourselves to become entrapped and our political preferences and ideology, forcing others to submit to that same worldview or they can't be a part of the family of God? Will we, lay, will we do the hard work of laying that down so that others might come to know Jesus? Church, maybe even this word is even more important. Over the course of the next several weeks, we are going to be tempted to allow our own preferences and preconceived notions about how to respond to the coronavirus pandemic and allow those preferences and beliefs to create disunity and discord amongst ourselves. Church, there will be some among us who think that this entire thing has been blown out of proportion and we never should have stopped meeting in the first place. Others among us are scared and worried worried for their very lives and will, for as long as possible, avoid meeting together. Church, will we do the hard work of laying down our personal pride and beliefs for the sake of our brothers and sisters for unity, to love one another and maybe even at some points agree to disagree so that instead we might gather around the finished work of Jesus and exalt him above all things, even our view of how we respond to the coronavirus? Will we do the hard work like the church did here in Acts 15 of laying down our preferences, of laying down our traditions so that we can join together, locked in arm to witness for the sake of the gospel? Church, I wanna do that. Will you do that with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that we have examples of church fathers and faithful men and women who went before us who still struggle with some of the very same things we do. Mainly, sorting in between preferences and tradition and not allowing those preferences and those traditions to pull us away from the mission that you gave us in Acts 1.8. Father, will you unearth 
our preferences and our idols this morning. May you reveal to us the ways in which they may be hindering our witness. And Father, will you give us the courage and will you grant us repentance so that we can confess that as sin and see with your wisdom how we might witness to your glory. And Father, as we witness to your glory, help us to remove obstacles and barriers to the gospel. And as we do that, God, will you help us to faithfully share what Jesus Christ has done, that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die in our place and offer us adoption into the family of God, not by any work of our own, but simply by the work of Jesus Christ. And Father, will you then reveal yourself to others as we witness to them so that we can see a greater worship of you. God, I'm reminded of your word and revelation that one day people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will stand before your throne declaring that you are worthy and worthy of worship. May we remember that that is the case as we seek to unearth our own idols and preferences this morning. Help us to do that, Lord. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.